we were in Spain and we had a, a pillowcase full of, uh, full of money. And we were deciding where to go. We didn't know where to go next, you know. And so we went to the to the airport in uh, Malaga. And we were just standing in the airport with all of our stuff, you know, all of our suitcases and the pillowcase full of money. And we were looking at that little signboard, you know, with the with the destinations that kind of flipped on those black things with a clatter around and around and around. And we were just deciding where in the world to go next. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is David and Goliath Part 2. When I was interviewing Richard Munchkin, I asked him if he could give me a rundown of the games he's played with an advantage. He said that it would be easier to list the games he hasn't beaten. That might be a difficult idea to digest because this is a largely unknown world. People think you can make money counting cards, beating sports, playing poker, and some people have realized that you can beat video poker. You know, if they if they actually have kind of heard a lot about gambling, they maybe they've heard of that. But these guys didn't always know so many ways to win in the casino. Daryl Purpose told me that early on, they didn't think of themselves as advantage players, and he's not sure that term even existed. He said they were just card counters or blackjack players. But that didn't last long because, as the saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. So from the very beginning, 40 years ago, I was looking for ways to have a bigger edge than counting cards because I did not want to go 160 hours of losing again. And other than in foreign countries, I have done almost no counting of cards since since the 80s. So I've mostly been playing other ways of beating blackjack or other games entirely. For advantage players, there's a balance between being open to the idea that a game can be beaten while also being rigorous in assessing whether an advantage is real. Daryl talks about being wired to keep an open mind. These people understood the concept of random and non-random. It's so hard for most people to get their heads around that, including people that run casinos and deal these games. They just don't understand that. But we understood, wow, here's a, here's a non-random thing that the casino thinks is random. And the way I see it, that's how we grew out of card counting, because we found edges that were much, much bigger than card counting. Uh, just by, by looking at a game, by watching it being played, by watching the procedure, oh, now the dealer pulls that card and he puts that here, da, 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 this, and there's that rule that uh, some dealers maybe follow and some dealers don't. And I mean, that's how we do, you know, people like uh, people like James Grosjean and, and some others are, are so good that they just embody this kind of this sense, you know, they can watch a game, any game, it doesn't have to be blackjack, they can just watch any game and just think, All right, well, what, what's non-random about this game that the casino thinks is random? As applied to blackjack, this idea of having an open mind produced a number of ways to beat the game. Here's Richard again. So counting cards is sort of the the very bottom rung of the ladder. For many people, that's the very first thing they learn. It's the smallest edge. It's the most amount of heat from the casino. 
Um, the next rung up the ladder was shuffle tracking, right? It, it pretty much doubled your edge back in those days when the shuffles were really easy. Maybe the next rung up the ladder would be sequencing, uh, where you're memorizing strings of cards so that as you see cards coming out, you know that an ace uh, is much more likely to be coming out within the next few cards. In the Martin Scorsese movie Casino, there's a scene where two gamblers are taken to the back room. One of them has his hand broken with a hammer and then gets dumped in the alley. The thing they were doing at the table is sometimes called spooking. Mark Billings explains it here. When the dealer had a 10 up, an ace up as well, but a 10 up, the dealer would peek beneath it to make sure there wasn't an ace down there. Because if there was an ace down there, hand is over. The dealer flips up the ace, everybody loses, she scoops your money, scoops the cards, boom, let's get on to the next hand, right? And in peeking, a lot of dealers, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but some dealers would expose that card to either somebody behind on the other side of the pit or maybe so off to the side a little bit. Spooking was just one way the players had to see the dealer's whole card. The dealer's down card, whole card, is beneath the dealer's up card. And in order to get that card down there, they have to jam it underneath. And in doing so, some dealers would expose the card. Some to the front, some to the side, most to the side, I should say. And so that became known as front loading. And it's a huge edge. I mean, obviously, if you know what the dealer has up, which you can see, and also what she has down, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive edge. But not everyone was so interested in getting a peek at this valuable information. Tommy Hyland said whole cards just didn't appeal to him. I play a lot of gin rummy, and I was just always learned that if, you know, some guy was showing you his card, you'd say, hey, hold your cards back there. You know, it wasn't a, a fair way to win or whatever. And I, I just never, uh, you know, I don't, uh, if somebody else has a different view, I, I respect that. But I just never felt like I wanted to be a whole carder. I, I never, when I tell people what I do for a living, I tell them I play blackjack. I beat them by using math. I don't want to say, well, I sneak around and sit real low at the table and try and look at the dealer's whole card. I'd rather say, you know, I beat the game by uh, mathematics or whatever. Another advantage involved carefully watching the shuffle, seeing the last card in the deck, and then cutting a precise number of cards. If the last card is a big card, they would cut it to a teammate at the table. If it was a small card, they would cut it to the dealer. So they spent time practicing how to cut exactly 13 cards. Any time that you know the exact location of a card in pretty much any game, that can be an enormous edge. Whatever the game, let's say it's Baccarat. If you know what the 59th card in the shoe is, that's a big edge, <laughs> you know? So yes, if you can cut a certain number of cards and you know that a certain card is 13 cards down, that's a really big edge. I think my favorite thing about these stories is trying to imagine how exasperated the casinos must have felt. If you work in a casino, your best day is a boring day. You don't want to have to deal with these characters that sit in apartments with no furniture and no curtains and practice cutting exactly 13 cards. Even though all of these plays are interesting, the thing we're going to spend the most time on is computers. Richard can give us a primer. Keith Taft developed this hidden blackjack computer that you operate with your toes, and computers were not illegal in Las Vegas until 1985. You know, the first iteration was a computer that would count cards. The second iteration was a computer that would shuffle track. The third iteration was a computer that would sequence. The technology that went into that and the 
uh, work involved in, in making those plays happen, uh, you know, it was pretty brilliant. It exploited the fact that uh, dealers would clump. When I say clump, I mean dealers would uh, shuffle the cars in clumps. And so, like, there might be a sequence of, you know, eight, eight, ten, seven cars that would uh, make it through to unchanged from the previous shuffle. So a lot of times we'd tell the, the computer would tell the big player to play two hands. And then if, if the sequence uh, made it through, we'd have lock winners. You know, if it didn't, we'd have, uh, you know, I... I forget, sometimes we'd only have a, an advantage where we knew we were getting a 10 or an ace on the first card, but sometimes we'd actually tell the guy to play three hands, and all three hands might be a lock winner or something if the if the clump made it all the way through. But yeah, things went wrong all the time. I mean, we, we always, uh, you know, some nights would be really frustrating. Some nights we'd have this particular deal deal where we were trying to uh, zone in on and we couldn't we could never get the deal, you know, or right when uh, we finally cleared his table off, uh, you know, they'd switch him to roulette or something, you know. You have to remember, this is not a generation that grew up with iPhones and tablets. So being able to simply use a computer was not guaranteed. In fact, Tommy was not a natural with technology. I was really scared because I'm like an idiot when it comes to technology and stuff. Like, you know, whatever, I can barely uh, turn on any kind of machine, you know, an oven or, uh, you know, I'm lucky I can operate a TV or something. You know, these guys that I was playing with were all excited about these computers, and I was afraid I wouldn't be able to uh, learn how to dope. It was actually quite uh, easy, uh, you know, the way it was for the time. Uh, now it would be, uh, you know, this you know, young kid would laugh at us at the, this equipment. But at the time, it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty amazing. We'd have uh, these levers, and we had an up and down switch in our boots, and then we'd wear the computer in a uh, you know one of those like things you put on your leg for holding money. We'd have a we'd wear this little computer in there, and then we'd have wires running up our pant legs. It's not like you could just walk into the Apple Store to buy your blackjack computer. One of the guys on the team knew an engineer. And this guy was perfect for this job because not only was he the engineer, but he also knew a lot about signaling stuff like radios and stuff like that. And so he basically designed a computer. We had a, a circuit board built. The circuit board always had mistakes. And then we all sat around a table with these anti-static mats. So we kind of passed the boards around and each one of us was responsible for a couple of resistors or the clock chip or the whatever. And then the engineer himself always did the soldering. And you definitely couldn't take it back to the Apple store when the computer broke, which they did often. We all learned how to use a soldering iron <laughs> and, uh, uh, because, yeah, you couldn't take it into the shop. You know, um, usually what was breaking was the wires that led to the toe switches. So, you know, we learned how to resolder them. We had to solder batteries together, um, as I recall. Oh, no, wait, maybe that was a different computer where we did the, the batteries. But um, yeah, we ended up learning how to do this stuff for ourselves. There's sort of a paradox that exists anytime you get a machine to make decisions. The point is to assign the task to something with greater processing ability than a human. The problem is that the machine's decisions become more valuable the further they deviate from what a human could do. And the same thing makes them harder for humans to trust. I mean, it would do all kinds of weird things. And in the beginning, we weren't doing them because we were like, this is too weird. Like, that can't be right. You know, it would tell you to hit this 17 against a four, you know, and then, you know, the next card out is a three. 
and and so we started thinking, well, maybe it does actually know what it's doing. But also, we didn't want it to look too weird, right? You don't want to make plays that are going to make everybody in the casino go, what the hell is going on with that guy? Not only did the computers have to be built, but the shoes to hold the switches also had to be fabricated. So the guys that went to Vegas to count cards not only became handy with a soldering iron, they also became amateur cobblers. And probably there should be some emphasis on the word amateur. He was carving out one of those shoes for the non-random shuffle machines. You know, we had exacto knives and we bought, we bought normal shoes. Uh, Red Wing shoes were real good because they had those thick soles. And then we just took an exacto knife to it and carved in a place for the buzzer and, you know, place for the, the uh, switches and such. And, um, I think it was, uh, it was 4 a.m. So people were about to go out on graveyard. Maybe it was like 3 a.m. And, uh, Craig was working on one of his shoes and some other people were getting ready to go out. Uh, play, um, I think it was a whole card at the time. And, uh, Craig was trying to carve into the sole of this red wing shoe, you know, which is just thick rubber, right? And he was, if you can imagine, he's holding the shoe with his left hand and he's got his right hand out past the left hand and he's carving in towards himself, carve a hole in the shoe to put the switches in and he slips and the exacto knife just right into his chest. And there is blood everywhere. And it turns out he hit a rib. <laughs> so, so he was all right. And the thing that we all remember that we can't figure out, you know, thinking back about it is the two guys going out to, on a play. Um, you know, Craig's like, can you, you know, drive me to the <laughs> drive me to the emergency room, drive me to the hospital. And they're like, no, no, we got this whole card, man. It's Caesars. It starts at four, man. <laughs> you know, sorry. So Craig called a taxi and went down and got stitched up. Eventually, the computers caused enough heartache that the casinos figured out how to spot them, and they also lobbied the state of Nevada to make them illegal. Here's Tommy talking about the beginning of the end. You know, as time went by, and more People had them in the casinos, uh, caught on to them. They learned to look for like, uh, young guys with, uh, clumsy looking shoes or boots, keeping their feet flat on the floor and, uh, things like that you know eventually we did get caught uh you know at places with these computers and they didn't like it but then and they you know they would like back room me and threaten you or something but uh there was nothing they could really do tommy wanted to take the computer to the bahamas so he had his attorney research the laws there there was nothing to make the shoes illegal which turned out to be entirely irrelevant the word had gotten out you know, Griffin or whatever had uh, alerted these guys as to what to look for uh, to spot a computer player. And they uh, they pulled me off the table and uh, said, take off your shoes or whatever. And, you know, we went back and forth. Eventually, I took, out, took off my shoes and there were all the wires and everything. And, you know, they were very uh, triumphant about it. They were very proud of themselves. They had, they, they had caught me. And they had, they had the police come. They had me arrested. My wife was with me. She was on the beach. They went to the beach and got her off the beach they detained her for uh maybe uh i think less than 24 hours but for quite a while maybe like 16 hours they eventually moved me to a uh a cell where uh the only cell they had open was on death row both guys uh on in the cells next to me were uh both uh, condemned to death 
I had two lawyers fly down from Vegas. Uh, everything was all about the money. There was no, uh, if I, as long as I was willing to give them enough money uh, back, they were uh, they were willing to let me go or whatever. I basically agreed to give them a bunch of money, and they uh, let me out. Everybody had their hand out. We got to have a Bahamian lawyer. He shook me down for more money. Then the guy uh, that was escorting me to the airport, my uh, lawyer told me to make sure to give him a few hundred dollars or else, you know, I might not get taken to the airport. It seemed like there was no law. You know, the only thing that spoke was uh, money. Everyone has a different tolerance for risk. And Mark Billings had a very high tolerance. Even after Nevada passed its device law, the team pressed ahead with a play that sounds very illegal. There was a camera that camera was at table level and the person doing the cutting would riffle the cards one at a time. It could riffle fast, but it had to be one at a time. And if, if two cards went down at one time, then the whole thing would be destroyed. So if you think about it, the riffle is going from the, the bottom up and then you do a cut. And when you do a cut, the cards remaining in your hand wind up on the bottom and the cards that you just riffled wind up on the top. And those are the cars that are going to be dealt out. And so the camera actually sent a signal out to a van. And in the van, we had a video recorder and the guy would, you know, he would, he would turn the video recorder on when the time came, record the riffle, bang it back, find the start of the riffle, and then started putting, inputting the cards one at a time as they flip, 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 flip. Each card remained for about three frames. We had a, we had a pretty good, I mean, for that time, this was 87. We had a pretty good, uh, video recorder and he would input the things and then the computer would basically say okay bet we three hands of strategy one or two hands of strategy two or two hands of strategy three or whatever it was so that whatever happened we were going to win every single hand and we did and the thing is when i was using the computers it was legal right those uh, those shuffle tracking computers we built them for the very first time it was like late 82 the computers didn't become illegal until 85 so those were legal now the camera thing yeah that was crazy in retrospect absolutely nuts but the thing is we were you know we were very very careful and uh, and to be blunt pretty good at this i mean if if at any time there was any chance that anybody saw anything we just called it off we just wouldn't do it but the, the beautiful thing about it is if it was done properly, it was just like a magic trick, right? Everything was done before anybody knew to start looking. Mark eventually took his technical knowledge and turned to roulette. Some brilliant people had already tried to beat roulette over the years, and the results had been promising, but bittersweet. When I say brilliant people, I mean Ed Thorpe, who invented card counting, along with Claude Shannon, the inventor of information theory, and two guys who contributed to chaos theory, Doan Farmer and Norman Packard. So some of the smartest people to ever work on gambling problems had tried to beat roulette. Mark's roulette project took note of the earlier work, but ended up using a novel approach to make predictions. Actually, his method of making the predictions would be familiar to anyone that has designed recommendation systems on the internet. Collect some data, like wheel speed and ball speed, then look in the database for past similar spins and use those spins to make a prediction. Does the beginning of this spin look sufficiently like any other spin in the database? I mean, it's like the ball had eyes, you know, you bet over here on this side of the wheel and the ball 
would it, it really looked like it was trying to get there. That's what it looked like. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was something to see. Mark thinks that they were playing with an edge that might have been 100% or greater. Their edge was so big that the main consideration became deciding how much they would win. What we used to call it was a pain threshold. We knew roughly what they could put up with before they just couldn't take it anymore. All the things these guys were doing in the casino had the potential to leave evidence. Maybe the evidence was just the casino seeing that a game was getting hammered, but also just seeing an advantage player at a table could be a clue. We did not want things to spread quickly. We did everything we could to keep them from spreading to the point where there were numerous occasions where a known player, we'd see somebody enter the casino and we would just stop playing and disappear before they could see us. Because we did not want any player to watch us play because some of us were kind of pretty high profile, pretty well known in the advantage play world. And if they saw us on the table together, they were immediately going to want to know what was going on. Even if we were on a tremendous game, you know, if somebody was going to see us, we would, we would shut it down. I remember one time walking through the MGM and I saw a guy I know, a known advantage player, sitting on a Baccarat table with a whole bunch of chips in front of him. And I was like, oh, what's going on here? I mean, I knew there was absolutely no chance he's just there gambling, right? So, you know, that happens. Suddenly I'm going to start investigating the Baccarat games in the MGM. We're not gamblers, right? So we didn't do this for fun. We didn't do this because we wanted to. We did this because that was our job. So I wasn't saying, boy, let's go out and play. That never, I don't, I can't remember anybody ever saying that. It was like, there's a good situation here. We should go there and, and, you know, do some cutting or do some front loading or do some counting or whatever it may be, right? Nobody I knew who did this for a living did it for fun. The guys doing these things are obviously brilliant. And while they made money on these plays, I always think money tends to be an insufficient explanation for why people do anything. Mark has some more thoughts on his motivation. I think I, I got more of a kick out of the actual planning and then the building of the equipment and stuff than actually going out to play. Especially, I mean, I can tell you for certain with the roulette. I mean, the roulette was absolute murder to get that working. But once it was working, you know, going out to play was almost like, all right, let's, you know, let's go get the money. For me... What the gambling afforded was time. It was huge chunks of time where you could do whatever you want. You know, we weren't out there 40 hours a week by any stretch of the imagination. And that allowed us to do all kinds of other things that we'd prefer to do other than gambling. We had huge amounts of spare time. You know, we had a boat and we'd go water skiing. I, I actually do quite a bit of reading. I got, a, you know, a huge amount of reading done. And in that respect, it was terrific. A lot of travel. I mean, I spent huge amounts of time in Europe, years actually, you know, all over Europe, get a chance to practice different languages. Um, we've been to, you know, Korea and Macau and the Caribbean. And it was just, it was, ter- it was terrific. And things that happened that you never, ever, ever forget, you know, like certain volleyball games on the beaches in France where all the women were topless. I don't think, I don't, I mean, I don't care how deeply into Alzheimer's I get. I don't think I'm ever going to forget that. But Daryl admits that he struggled 
with his life as a professional gambler. You know, if you're a clerk at 7-Eleven, you are helping the world move along. We're not doing any of that. That was a problem for me. That was like one of the main reasons I felt like I needed to get out. When Daryl reached his 30s, this unease about his career combined with some other challenges to set his life down a new path. So in my 30s, I, I, I got into trouble. We had the one bankroll in my life that we lost money at. And uh, the guy that invested in that then asked me for a favor. He got me a fake ID, which I was used to. And he asked me to handle large amounts of money, which I was used to. And I did not have any boundaries when it came to the law. And it was all a sting. And I got in trouble. I got in trouble with the, uh, in my 30s with the um, not having to do with gambling exactly, but uh, with the criminal justice system. And um, I got lucky and was sentenced to three months in a halfway house. And it was in East Hollywood. I was in my 30s. And I had no idea what this was all about, but I packed a suit, little suitcase and I reported there. And um, I went to an intake meeting and the woman there said, you know, this is a work release program. You can go home during the day if you have a job. And at that time, I was living in L.A., playing blackjack once in a while, but always wanting out of that world. And so I was playing some open mics with my guitar, some songs I'd written around L.A. at that time. And she says, you can go home if you have a job. And, and again, I've just been playing open mics with my guitar. And I, I reach into my pocket. I pull out a CD that I had recorded in friends' living rooms. I put it on the table and I said, I'm a national touring singer-songwriter. I'll have to go home and work on my career. And she said, okay. And so every day I went home and I got on what was brand new at the time, the internet. <laughs> and I started working on my music career, which didn't exist. And I ended up playing music, performing music full time for 10 years. Uh, and it's one of the things I'm most proud of. And it was a lot about not having, not having limits. And it was a lot about not having money as well <laughs> because because I was making a living driving around in my truck playing at these folk venues recording albums that got played on folk radio across the country and, and having a career I always loved Colorado and there was no good reason for my music career to be in Colorado but it was 2003 2004 and um, I decided I was gonna move to Colorado regardless of what it meant to my music career and I came to came to Colorado and uh, Munchkin called me and said hey I, I want to do an interview for this this book I'm writing and I was like okay you know and he we uh, did the interview and he asked me questions and he said, you know, you know, there's some new things going on uh, in gambling, like you can gamble online. And I had said to myself, as long as my music career grew from one year to the other, I would be I would just be blindfolders on. I would be just like with my music, like I was with uh, Blackjack in my my teens. And uh, and then one year, it was like maybe 2003. It didn't quite go as well as the year before because I didn't put out a new record and didn't quite go as well. And so I considered what Munchkin was telling me. And the house I was staying at in Colorado didn't have any internet, but there was internet at the Starbucks in Colorado Springs. And so I bought a computer and I went down to the Starbucks in Colorado Springs and Munchkin said you could gamble on the internet. And I just opened it up. 
I just looked around. I just started gambling. All of a sudden, I was making two hundred dollars a day. I thought, oh, that's cool. That's gonna <laughs> that's gonna pay some expenses for my for my music. And then all of a sudden, I, I bought another computer, and I was making two thousand dollars a day. <laughs> and and、um, I won a million dollars in that Starbucks. You know, I, so I went from being a starving artist touring with my guitar, playing songs I had written in bookstores and and such. To like having a lot of money, and、uh, I said to myself, well, "What? What do you want to do? You can do anything." And、uh, what I wanted was a home, and I wanted a home here in Colorado, in the mountains.、And、so I bought this house, and I blinked, and 15 years have gone by. So Daryl took the long way around, and eventually got back into gambling. But it was music that helped him resolve the tension he felt. You know, ultimately, I ended up thinking that it's because a lot of us have made enough money to make a difference in other ways, and whatever you know has gotten me here, I've made a difference with my music. I've written songs that have mattered to people. I've written songs that have saved people's lives. In part one, I said that these guys may have become unexpected heroes. So let's revisit this idea. Daryl's story fits the shape of the hero's journey. A seemingly ordinary young man is called to adventure, discovers his powers, undergoes trials, succumbs to temptation, descends into the underworld, experiences redemption and atonement, and ultimately finds his place in the world. Now, am I laying it on a little thick here? Absolutely. But in my defense, the characters in the story have names that tell you something about the character. I mean, Daryl's name is Purpose. And then there's the Keith Taff reference to David and Goliath, so it would require more restraint than I have to resist connecting the dots. Half of the David and Goliath metaphor is the unlikely hero; the other half is the bully that needs to be taken down a peg. Here's Tommy. I never really got burned out, but I kind of like the、uh, you know beating at casinos.、Uh... You know, I've kind of I've found it kind of a noble,、uh, noble endeavor. These are kind of people that、uh, need to be beaten. I think. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. A huge thanks to the guests Richard Munchkin, Mark Billings, Daryl Purpose, and Tommy Highland. To get in touch with the show, you can email Risk of Ruin Pod. At gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter at Half Kelly. Be sure to subscribe to the show and look out for the next episode, which I'm calling the Road Warrior. We'll meet current day pros that crisscross the country, getting kicked out of the 400 casinos in the U.S. Every so often, there's some weird holiday or something. You're out playing, you you kind of forget that it's a holiday, and then there's no rooms around at all. So then you just have to sleep in a rest area. I was sleeping in this rest area. In my car, and、uh, you know, went to Walmart, got some yoga mats and some pillows, and then made like a little bed set up in the trunk.、Uh, but I just could not get any good sleep because it was Fourth of July. It was hot. There was this creepy guy like going around with a baseball bat, and he was just like looking into people's cars. Like it just was not a good place to be.